I really feel that the Lord has already um, preached tonight, I guess through his presence, his Holy Spirit. I want to share something with you before we go into the Word. I felt concerned over the last couple of years, ever since I've come off the mission field. I've been around many of the churches, and I felt that I'd seen a sort of a cooling coming into the saints. And I've been seeking the Lord for a long time about how we go about bringing revival. And the Lord has shown me in many ways that revival has to start in our own hearts. It doesn't start as a body. It starts in you and it starts in me. And the Lord made me to understand before I could go looking for revival anywhere else, I had to start with myself. It took me to examine my life. When I came back from Darwin in 2009, my daughter came to live with me. And I found there was a change in my life because I didn't have the privacy for my prayer and my devotions. And over the past five years, I found that it wasn't that my love had cooled, but I didn't have the fire that I used to have for the Lord. And so I've been praying and fasting this year and asking him, how do I get it back? How do I get that first love back? I want it. And so he said, look at your life. Look at your life. Look at your days. Look at your hours and see what you're filling them with. And I found that when I came back from Darwin, I had started to watch the television. I'd never ever had a television, but my daughter brought one with her. And it wasn't anything bad. I just started once a week watching the ABC gardening show because I love gardening. But then, after some months, I added to it grand designs. And after a while, I found Instead of watching it occasionally, I was watching those two shows all the time. And then I went on to reading novels, which I had never read before, only read Christian books in my Bible. And so early this year, I had to stop and take a really good look at myself. Those things in themselves are not evil, they're not bad. But you see, what they were doing was, they were taking my attention away from Jesus. So tonight, I want to bring you what God has given me because I know, I believe, that Australia, all of our churches, are on the verge of revival. But it's only those of us who are ready, like the parable of the ten virgins, we've got to be really filled up with oil. We all have the lamp. We all have the Bible. But whether or not we are filled up with the Spirit is the thing that's important. I changed my ways. I stopped watching the programs. I stopped reading the books. I started praying more, and I started doing more devotions. And what happened was I just couldn't stop weeping. Everywhere I went, I was weeping, and I just felt the Lord. You see, he's so close to us. He never leaves us. But we allow ourselves to be drawn away. In Jeremiah chapter 1, 
and verse 10. God speaking to Jeremiah said, See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. I've called this the sevenfold commission. Seven things the prophet was to command Israel to do, to rule, to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. You see, Israel had fallen away from the Lord. Her love had cooled for him. And this was what they had, the prophet had to tell Israel to do in order for Israel to come back. Of the sevenfold commission, four of those commands are destructive. And two of them are constructive. To build and to plant is a wonderful thing. But before any building and planting can be done, there has to first be a rooting out and a pulling down. There has to be destruction and demolition. Sister Belay, isn't that a bit drastic? No. That is what God does. It was absolutely necessary, as biblical history teaches us, the Jewish kingdom had become overgreen with weeds built on superstructures, traditional superstructures. The weeds in the traditional superstructures had to go first. Some destruction was necessary. When my daughter and I first purchased our rural residential property in Campbelltown, it was a corner block, one acre. To the eye, when I looked at it, as flat as a pancake, and I said to her, well, praise God, we won't have to spend a lot of money leveling the land. But when I went back and had a look, after they had laid the block, I found mountains of stones and rocks and soil and things at the side of the site. They had brought the bulldozers in, and they had leveled it. To my eye, it looked fine. But they had to do a lot of destructive work to that land first before they could lay the foundation. Three years along the track, after mountains of weeds have been pulled out and tons of good soil added, not to mention hours and hours of back-breaking labor, we are only just beginning to see a semblance of a garden. You see, one of the hardest lessons for me has to learn has been to differentiate between what is a weed and what is a plant. Let's remember the first work of revival or growing a good land is the rooting out of the weeds and utterly destroying them. Many of us can't wait to go to conference each year. We go there because we feel dry. We feel that we need a refreshing, a reviving. And we get it. And we come home from conference and perhaps two or three months later, we feel just the same. You see, the thing is, if you've had a, if you're suffering from really bad indigestion and you go and eat a great big bowl of cream or something, you're aggravating the problem. So what happens in your garden? If you don't root out and destroy all the weeds, but instead 
you give it a great big dose of fertilizer, what you're doing is feeding the weeds and the thorns that are already there. They, first of all, must be rooted and pulled out. They have to be destroyed. One of the greatest weaknesses in trying to bring about this revival in our own lives today is that we attempt to sow the good seed among thorns. And the thorns will just keep springing up and the seed will be choked to death. Despite the good intention of the sower, seed sown in a prepared ground requires only the action of the elements to produce fruit in its season. What I'm saying is, if we examine our lives, if we take the hard road and we pull out those weeds and thorns, we don't have to do much else because as we get close to God, the fruit will come. If we're in a proper relationship with God, we will generally be hungry for the great truths and promises of his word. I told you I couldn't wait to get back from the UK. I thought if they kept me back there one more day, I would die. I just wanted to get back into the presence of his people. The problem is that sadly, many of us are not in proper relationships with God. The obvious lack of revival in our own lives is mostly due to the fact that we are out of touch with our Heavenly Father, who is the source, the only source of divine power. I read something this year, which was very instrumental in helping me to get my life right back on track again. You might think, because I've been a missionary all these years and working for the Lord, that I'm exempt from falling. No. Satan has a real good go at me, and I am tempted as you are, but I'm always alert to what's happening, and I always try to get back to God. This was a conversation that took place between a soldier and his commanding officer. Here's how it went. It was during wartime. A soldier reported to his commanding officer. I've taken a prisoner, he said. Great, said his commanding officer. Bring him along with you. But he won't come, complained the soldier. Well, just come by yourself, said his commanding officer. I can't, replied the soldier. He won't let me. This may seem funny to some of you, but I have to confess it made me sit up and really think how this was working out in my daily life. I asked myself, who's the prisoner here? Who's the prisoner here? In 2 Corinthians 5.17 we read, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. In Matthew 9.17, he tells us, Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. You see, when the new wine is put into a new wineskin, the old wineskins are not patched up and repaired. They are destroyed. They are thrown away. The old man passes away when all things become new in Christ. Christ does not add a new coat of paint over the old person or reconfigure 
existing furnishings. He tears the house down and he rebuilds it altogether. I know that some of you have probably heard this before, but I love it. I'm a great admirer of C.S. Lewis. And he said in his testimony, when he was converted and became a Christian, imagine yourself in a living, as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in such a way that it hurts abominably, and it doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is, he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here and there. He's putting in an extra floor, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought he was going to build you a nice little cottage. But he's actually building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. You see, he tears it down. He destroys it. In actual fact, he applies the cross. The problem today in the lives of many of our saints is that the cross of Christ has lost its true meaning. It has now rightly been termed a divided or a dissected cross or a decapitated gospel. I was sharing with Brother Butcher, I have never, ever heard a Hillsong church service. But I was curious in studying about revival to understand why. What was it? that drew tens of thousands of people into their services. So I went onto my computer to watch one. I can't even remember the man's name. It's Brian something. Houston, Brian Houston. Forgive me for speaking his name. But I listened to it for 15 minutes, and then I thought, I can't listen to this dribble. There wasn't a word about Jesus Christ. There was absolutely nothing glorifying God. It was all hype. You see, that's the divided or dissected cross I'm talking about. The decapitated gospel. It has become a social church. We need to ask ourselves if there are times ourselves when we feel embarrassed about causing frowns on the faces of worldly people, men and women? Do we find ourselves feeling good when the world flatters us? How many of us feel guilty about spending unwarranted time over some hobby instead of redeeming the time? We call it relaxation. I did. But there may be some worldliness in it. Do we sit with slippered feet watching the world news? when we might be giving a Bible study or the good news to lost men and women? I did. Do we refuse to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ and our soft little world has us tied up? I'm guilty. The habit of too many late nights, eating out and having funny conversations, cheating ourselves of the time needed for God's fellowship in the word and prayer next morning because we go to bed too late. Then we get up in the morning, ungirded, stripped of our armor to meet the world at large. 
all because of our own secret inner worldliness. Now, I've confessed to you that I'm guilty and I don't believe I'm the only one. How much are we regulated by public opinion, perhaps religious opinion, rather than scriptural principles? Or how easily are we content to allow this or that thing, be it ever so innocent or lovely, to soil the world to come? I feel outrage at some of the things I see taking place in our world, and I feel helpless to do other than pray. And I don't think I would have the courage that Jesus had to take up a small whip of cords and beat people that I saw selling things in God's church. I don't have that courage. I remember when I was a young Christian, I was as bold as a lion to stand up for the Lord. Heaven help anyone who tried to besmirch his name. But I have to ask myself, am I still like that? Do I still count it a privilege to suffer shame for his name? Do we still have expectations of great contentment and satisfaction from certain earthly comforts? When I was in Irianjaya for all those years, no running water. I had to go to the well to get water. I lived in a dreadful little house with no glass in the windows. And I loved every minute of it. There was no church. But on Sunday morning, I would get up and write my songs. I would have a tape to listen to, and then I would pray and sing some more songs all by myself in my little house. And I felt the presence of God fall in that place. How fond are we of nice things and luxuries, and how unwilling are we to forgo them for the sake of sending the gospel to the lost? Oh, how we hate to be counted as eccentric. When I was in the UK recently, my sister, who is a professed atheist, she remarked, Margaret, you Pentecostals are all fanatics. I was called a fanatic Mary and Jaya. I thought it was a beautiful thing to be called, to be a fanatic for Jesus. But I haven't been called one for a long time. And how unquestionably obedient are we to allow fashion to dictate what we wear, not because the styles are reasonable or right or decent, for they are mostly unreasonable and indecent. Some saints are so worldly-minded, they would rather be indecent than be different. And I've been around some churches, and I know. But you see, until we take a long, personal look at ourselves, we shouldn't be worried about things like false doctrine. The whole root of the ruin of the Christian church is found in worldliness. Worldliness is the root and the thorns of which I began this message. It's the weeds and the thorns. It's the roots of these that shall destroy God's people. Quite simply put, a real Christian is one who sustains a close living relationship with Jesus Christ. One who enjoys a kind of union with Jesus Christ that supersedes all other relationships. You see, but to achieve this, the self-life must die. Dying to self in order to live for Christ is more than a philosophy. It's the only way of life for every one of us 
who want to overcome the flesh and its desires. Believe me, I'm speaking from personal experience. And I know the struggle and the battle. But I also know there can be only one winner. And it's not going to be the prisoner. The cross was used by the Romans to kill their enemies. And whether you or I want to believe it or not, it's what God uses to kill us today. Those of us today who try to avoid the cross or to sanitize it, or to try to idolize it, or even deny it altogether, do so at their own peril. Yet, it is not the cross that has power. The cross is simply the instrument that God uses to demonstrate his power, and then to generate new life, and to bring revival in us, to the soul out of what he has already destroyed. It's said the Emperor William refused a request for an audience prepared by a German-American. The Emperor declared that Germans born in Germany and who became naturalized in America became Americans. He said, I know Americans and I know Germans, but German-Americans I don't know. We are now freed in Christ. The cross has cut us off, killed us outright. To the old citizenship and the way of life. We are not Adam Christ believers. A position such as this will not get us an audience with the king. Christ died in our place. We are indeed dead men, but for Christ, he died for our death. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bear our sins and his own body on the tree, and that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. Some of you may be listening to me tonight and thinking, what a boring old life it's going to be if I can't have a little bit of worldly pleasure. Or, well, I've heard this before, same old, same old. I'd advise you to keep in your mind the story of the soldier. Who was the prisoner? Who was the victor? Who is our greatest enemy? Believe me, it's not Satan. It's not Satan. I should say the flesh being fed by the spirit of the world. Self is the root. The branches, the tree of all the evils of man's fallen conditions. I feel saddened about hearing about the churches that are crying out for pastors, but no one is willing to leave their comfort zone and go in faith to meet the need, trusting in God. I wish I were 20 years younger. In reading a book lately, it's called The Last Generation of Truth, written by a UPC brother called Daniel Butler. I felt a great sadness in reading of the rise and fall of so many dominations, and who began so well that by the third generation, their relationship with God had left the spiritual realm to be replaced by sectarianism. Worldliness had got into the church. Man's reasoning and rationale are what brought these churches to the scrap heap. Reasoning, logic, rationale, instead of having faith in God and trusting in him. Theological training, academic degrees, and leadership seminars do not feed the spirit. They feed the mind. Building bigger and better organizations with more committees is not the answer 
That is the world's answer. God's answer is to draw closer to him, to deepen your personal relationship through increased devotions, more personal Bible reading, and meditation and regular prayer. These feed the spirit. But make no mistake, the battle will be fierce. It won't be won easily. Victory is going to cost you. Flesh and self will have to be placed on the altar of sacrifice. And if you feel it, it means your flesh is not yet dead. For me, I want revival, and I'm determined to fight for it. And at this stage of my life, I've come too far to lose it now. So how can we fight it? By being scrupulously honest in our examination of the tiny things of the world we have allowed to creep into our lives, and we have to cut them off. We have to allow God to destroy them through the cross. Musicians, can you come? I'm going to close with a story. Once upon a time, there were two kingdoms next to each other. One kingdom was ruled by a young king who was always trying to goad the other king who was old. But the old king remembered how he was young once, so he just ignored the foolish young king. One day, the young king started a war, and the old king captured him. The old king told him he had one chance to live. He was given a jug of water filled to the brim. He had to carry the jug from one end of the city to the other without spilling one drop. Behind the young king strode the soldiers and the executioner carrying the axe, a terrifying reminder that he would be beheaded if he spilled one drop. On the right-hand side of the street, people booed and mocked him. And on the left-hand side of the street stood those who stood to cheer him. He succeeded, and his life was spared. The old king asked him, When so many people were mocking you, did you answer them back? The young man answered, I had no time for that. I had to be careful about my jug. But did you thank the ones who cheered for you? What business did I have to do with them? Their cheers couldn't help me. I was concerned with my jug of water. The old king set him free with this advice. You have been entrusted with a soul. And you have to bring it back to the Lord, whole and clean. That is the only thing that counts. If you do not succeed, you perish. Don't seek the applause of men if they applaud you over cheap victories. Don't worry if they mock you. Watch over your soul. Anything that will prevent you from bringing your soul undefiled before the Lord must be rooted out, must be pulled down, must be destroyed and thrown down. Until we do so, we cannot begin to build and to plant. We cannot have revival. We cannot have a strong, united body of Christ. It is time for all of us to carry out God's sevenfold commission. God bless you. The altar is open.